0: Welcome to Tech Humanity, the weekly podcast where we examine the intersection between technology and humanity. In the 21st century, the so-called digital age, ones and zeros tend to determine much of what we call reality. Do you ever question the nature of your reality? Do you ever wonder how new technologies, things like social media, Apps for humanistic ideas and so on, shape your consciousness. Are we in charge of technology? Or is technology in charge of us? Will singularity become a reality? And AI become the new creator, competing directly with the metaphysical god. These are some of the ideas and questions educator, author, cultural critic, and philosopher of technology, Dr. Tony Kashani will examine in this episode and many more in the future. So please join us in Tech Humanity!
1: Hello friends, welcome to Tech Humanity. I'm your host, Tony Kashani. Today, I want to talk to you about state of being, identity, and the general meaning of our existence. A tall order to be sure. After all, this is just a 20 minute talk. But we'll give it a shot. First, a story. This will be the story of Prometheus, the Greek hero. Prometheus was a titan and he was a clever and supremely intelligent trickster. He committed a major crime. In the eyes of the king of gods, Zeus, that is, what was his crime? Well, he gave humans the gift of fire and also the skills of metalworks. This was not permitted by Zeus, of course. Prometheus, uh, meaning forethought, F-O-R-E-T-H-O-U-G-H-T was one of the intellectual leaders of the battle between the Titans and the Olympian gods to gain control of the heavens, a war that lasted a decade. In one version of the story, it is written that Prometheus advised the Titans to use trickery in the battle. And when they ignored his advice and lost to the Olympians, he switched sides. He was a trickster after all. It is also written that Prometheus wanted to empower the humankind, and to do this, he secretly went to Mount Olympus and stole fire. He gave the gift of fire to humans to help them in life's struggle. Moreover, he taught humans how to use their gift, and this, according to the myth, is the beginning of technology of metal work. So we can see why he's often credited with giving birth to science and culture, on a mythological level, mind you. In a slightly different version of the story, humankind already had fire, and when Prometheus tried to trick Zeus into eating bones and fat, instead of the best meat during a meal at Mount Olympus, Zeus, in anger, took away fire, so that man would have to eat his meat raw. Prometheus then stole the fire, as in the alternative version. This also explained why, in animal sacrifices, historically speaking, the Greeks always dedicated the bones and fat to the gods and ate the meat themselves. Back to the story. Zeus was furious by this act of theft and made sure to punish heavily the trickster Titan. How dare he, Zeus, had thought. What was the punishment for Prometheus? Well, he was taken to the East Lands, also known as the Caucasus. So you know where the word Caucasian comes from. Here, Prometheus was changed chained. chained to a rock, and Zeus sent an eagle to eat the Titan's liver. The liver regrew every night, and the eagle returned every day to perpetually torment Prometheus. There is, however, a happy ending here. After many years had gone by, Hercules, which is the Roman name for the Greek hero Heraclus and one of the most popular heroes from ancient Greek mythology, accidentally noticed what was happening to Prometheus. He was passing through near the rock where the benevolent Titan was chained and saw what the eagle was doing to the Titan's liver. Upon seeing this injustice, Hercules knew he had to do something. Hercules was an Olympian, after all, a mighty god who was actually half-god, half-man. He was the son of Zeus and the mortal woman, Alchimene Hero. He killed the eagle with one arrow, hence ending Prometheus' suffering. To be sure, like any other myth, the story of Prometheus is multivalent. Hence, one can have different kinds of interpretations. The way in which I see it, this is a story of justice and authenticity. In spite of the most cruel punishment that Zeus afflicts him, Prometheus doesn't submit, and he doesn't feel guilty either. He knew that taking the fire away from the gods and giving it to a human being was an act of compassion. He had been disobedient, of course, but he had not sinned. Like many other loving heroes in our stories and in our historical events, factual heroes as well as mythical heroes, Prometheus decided to break the equation between disobedience and sin and take the punishment that was part of the consequence. Now, I want to switch gears and talk about modes of being. The phenomena of human existence, a series of experiences that we have. There is a book written by the great thinker Erich Fromm, also known as Erich Fromm in the U.S. was a German thinker, and in 1976, he wrote this book called To Have or To Be. I'm going to read a bit of the uh, the blurb on the back of the book. To have or to be is regarded as one of the seminal books of the second half of the 20th century. Nothing less than a major manifesto for a new social and psychological revolution to save our threatened planet. This book is a summary of the penetrating thought of Erich Fromm. His thesis is that two modes of existence are struggling for the spirit of humankind. So what are these two modes of existence? On page 16, Fromm writes, having and being are two fundamental modes of experience, the respective strengths of which determine the differences between the characters of individuals and various types of social character. Let me break this down a bit. What? From is talking about is how we are determines whether we live an authentic and passionate life or a life that is prescribed to us by powers that be, the gods, the king of gods, systems, ideologies, and so on. So we can be in two modes, according to Fromm's theory. We can be in the mode of having, where we obtain things and form our identity based on what we have. Or we can be and base our identity, as it shifts and changes, because identity is fluid, based on who we are and live authentically. Take learning, for example. College students in the having mode of existence, we'll listen to lectures and understand the logical structure of them, and the meaning and so on. They'll uh, take notes, uh, put them in the computers, uh, break down the notes, uh, study them, take exams, pass the exams, get degrees, get into work, and find individual systems of thoughts and so on. But, something happens along the way. Are students obtaining and therefore having the knowledge given to them? Well, let me refer you to page 29. On page 29, Fromm writes, students in the having mode have but one aim to hold on to what they learned either by entrusting it firmly to their memories or by carefully guarding their notes. They do not have to produce or create something new. In fact, the having type individuals feel rather disturbed by new thoughts or ideas about a subject because the new puts into question the fixed sum of information they have. Indeed, to one for whom having is the main form of relatedness to the world, Ideas that cannot easily be pinned down or pinned down are frightening, like everything else that grows and changes, and thus is not controllable. So what's it like for students who are in the being mode? Well, that type of student, instead of being passive receptacles of words and ideas, those students listen, they hear. And most important, They receive and they respond in an active, productive way. What they listen to stimulates their own thinking processes, what I would call engagement. New questions, new ideas, new perspectives arise in their minds. Their listening is an alive process, and it's authentic. They listen with interest, hear what the lecturer might have to say, and spontaneously come to life in response to what they hear. They do not simply acquire knowledge that they can take home and memorize. Each student has been affected and has changed. Each is different after the lecture. Well, meaning true learning is transformative learning. When we live in a society that has a value system that rests on private property, profit, power, as the pillars of its existence. To acquire, to obtain, to own, and to make profit are known as sacred entities, acts, whatever you want to call them. That is the, the yielding results of industrial society and today the technological society, you could call it. What's the the currency of the information age? Information. And what do we do with information? We grab it, we own it, we use it. But this we is not the majority, is it? The majority are participants in a society that is designed and set up to protect and perpetuate the interests of the minority, those with the big computers. To aggregate information and use that information as currency, and turn, human beings who are the participants here, into beings who are actually products. These products that, that think that they are having things and therefore they are who they are for having this. There's a recent article written in The Atlantic by Derek Thompson, and in this article he talks about how what he calls workism, what used to be referred to as workaholicism, (laughs) uh, is making Americans miserable. He's advancing a thesis that work has become the new religion for Americans, which kind of comes at odds with our counterparts who live in European and other industrial developed nations, who uh, followed the prescription of previous thinkers who thought that as we get more technologically advanced, we don't have to work so much. We're going to have machines work for us, robots building our cars, our equipment. Algorithms creating formulas for success. Distribution of knowledge and money and wealth would be more democratic. So people would work less. In fact, Europeans have progressively worked towards creating a system that reduces the work week. Ideally, they want to reach the, uh, the ideal number of 15 hours a week. But in America, Americans work the hardest and the longest. And many Americans take work as religion. In other words, when people were adopting Christianity, they would call themselves Christian. Or Judaism, they would call themselves Jews. Or Islam, they would call themselves Muslim. Today, we have engineers, doctors, lawyers, plumbers, contractors, consultants, and so on, and people defining themselves through their professions. What they have acquired, which part of it is knowledge and skills, other part of it is means to bring satisfaction and, of course, wealth for many, not for all, but for many, because the person who works a full-time job as a retail salesperson and then at night has to go and drive his or her car for Uber or Lyft to make ends meet. Um, It's not necessarily defining him or herself as, well, the Uber driver or the retail salesperson. That person is kind of lost in the system of capitalism that uses technology that is increasingly becoming more and more pre-designed to protect and perpetuate the interest of the minorities in charge. And don't get me wrong, by minorities, I'm not talking about ethnic minorities. I'm talking about the 1%, the transnational class, those who have billions upon billions, and control. Control financially, control politically, and control culturally. The culture industry is hard at work to produce and reproduce and regenerate this sense this cultural sense that our identity has to go through the lens of work and stay there. Let me switch gears again. Let's talk about the dating systems. Nowadays the internet dating is no longer taboo. In fact, it's the norm. But is it based on experiencing love, finding that true love, authentic love, spontaneity, passion, and compassion? Well, we need to examine it. What happens when love is experienced in the mode of having? It can imply confining, imprisoning, or controlling the object one loves. It can be strangling, deadening, suffocating, not life-giving. What people call love is mostly a misuse of the word, in my view, and it hides the reality of not loving. Well, how many parents love their children is always an entirely open question, but one can say that parents always love their children, some unconditionally, some conditionally. Let's think about marriage. Whether marriage is based on love, or like traditional marriages of the past, or even currently in some societies, is social convenience, custom, political act, etc. The couple who truly love each other seem to be the exception. What's social convenience custom, mutual economic interest, share interest in children, mutual dependency, or mutual hate or fear, is consciously experienced as love. You go on to the dating sites and there are algorithms set up to collect information, detailed information about persons who decide to pay for a subscription and be there looking for love about what they like, what they do for a living, how much money they earn, photoshopping their their images so they can look their best, and all the rest of it. So it becomes a job. No longer do people meet one another in places of mass gathering, at parties, and, and other social gatherings, where the environment is safe and warm and inviting for authenticity, for being in the being mode. No, people are looking for technology to take care of this for them. I want to thank you for listening and we will continue our talk at the next episode of Tech Humanity. Farewell.